Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. There was not a lot of movies that came out this week in most theaters. As a matter of fact, there was only one film that really came out nationwide, and that will be the first film out of three films that I will be reviewing for you for this show. And it is an extension of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The movie I'm talking about, of course, is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which is the 28th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And yes, it is technically a sequel to the Doctor Strange movie that came out in 2016, but all the events that occurred in the Avengers Endgame, uh, the Avengers Infinity War, and Spider-Man, the the last Spider-Man movie, uh, occurs, or rather, occurs before this film. So... In this film, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Benedict Cumberpatch returns as the titular Doctor Stephen Strange, who casts a forbidden spell that opens the doorway to the multiverse, including alternate versions of himself, whose threat to humanity is too great for the combined forces of Strange, Wong, and Wanda Maximoff. And as I said, Benedict Cumberpatch reprises the role as Dr. Stephen Strange. Elizabeth Olsen appears in this movie as Wanda Maximoff, also known as the Scarlet Witch, and Benedict Wong appears as Wong, as he did in the previous Spider-Man film, as well as Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And his presence in this film probably more than makes up for one of the chief criticisms of the 2016 Doctor Strange movie in the sense that there was one particular character in that film who was played by Tilda Swinton, who was supposed to be Asian, but of course Tilda Swinton is Caucasian, and Doctor Strange was, I think rightly so, criticized for whitewashing that character as well as several others. So... Doctor Strange and the Multiverse in the Multiverse of Madness is more than making up for that. And unfortunately, that's about all I can say that's or I mean I shouldn't say all that I could say that's good about Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, but it's one of the only ways in which Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is an improvement over the original Doctor Strange as well as the previous Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Because even though the special effects in this movie are impressive, the story is not, and some of the characters, including those we know pretty well, were surprisingly underdeveloped. Doctor Stephen Strange is relatively well-developed, but he is one of the only ones. And we're introduced actually to a new character here whose name is America Chavez, who is a young Latina woman who's played by um, Cetil uh, Gomez, who is a very young actress. She's not even 20 years old, but America Chavez is a teenager who is native to New York City who has the ability to travel between dimensions by punching open doorways which actually uh, Doctor Strange has to work a little bit harder to go in between 
dimensions. And the only reason we know that America Chavez can go between dimensions is because she says she can. And we don't really exactly see her do that, or at least not as much as we should. But we're introduced to America Chavez in a very vivid, lucid dream that Stephen Strange has, where the two of them are being chased by a demon in the space between universes while looking for the Book of Vishante. And the Book of Vishante is exclusive to uh, Doctor Strange and the comic books. It's portrayed as being written by unknown authors and is in this cinematic universe, not to mention the comic book universe, the greatest known source of white magical knowledge on Earth. But unfortunately, when uh, Dr. Stephen Strange is trying to get uh, his hands on this book, so is his um, former confidant, Wanda Maximoff, who, as I said previously, is played by Elizabeth Olsen. And unfortunately, you don't really get the whole backstory of Wanda Maximoff from just watching the films like I did. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe has expanded into television, and there's nothing particularly wrong with that, but I do feel like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe has come so far that seeing these movies almost requires a list of prerequisites. Movies and TV shows you have to have seen. Because if you haven't seen the show WandaVision, in which Elizabeth Olsen co-stars, rather, you're probably going to be lost. And also, what I thought was bad about the development of uh, the character of Wanda Maximoff, not necessarily Elizabeth Olsen's portrayal of her, but the character herself, is she wants this magic book, not necessarily to take over the world, but through very long and long-winded exposition, her motivation is to just retire and raise her children. But she doesn't necessarily have to take this book in order to have children. But she is so obsessed with getting this book, getting world power, and eventually getting that humdrum life she always wanted by raising two boys that she's willing to jump dimensions and kill herself in another dimension to get this house in the suburbs with these two kids, which to me does not make a lot of sense for an otherwise former hero to go Vogue. And frankly, I actually think that's a little bit sexist to, um, have a woman character cause all this damage just because she wants to settle down and have kids. There are other ways to um, do this. And another thing that doesn't make sense about Wanda Maximoff's motivations is she wants to take America Chavez's powers to travel between dimensions in order to achieve this multidimensional goal. And And she's willing to kill, uh, Wanda Maximoff is, anybody in her way to get this done. And this is not, by the way, a fault of Elizabeth Olsen. Elizabeth Olsen is a great actress. I've known that ever since I saw her in Martha uh, Marcy May Marlene, in which she was excellent. And she's been very consistent in every film she's done since then 
including and most especially the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And she does make a good, good guy. And when she goes rogue, she has the power as an actress to make you believe she's bad. My problem is not with Elizabeth Olsen's acting in this movie. My problem is with her character's development. And as a matter of fact, I told you before that um, uh, Cedal Gomez does a relatively good job playing America Chavez. The problem with her character, and not the actress who plays her, but her character in general is... You hear her talk about how she has the ability to travel between dimensions. That's at first, but I wanted to see that before we're introduced to her being chased by a giant squid. Also in this movie, which I didn't think was a a very good subplot, is Dr. Stephen Strange and his love triangle with uh, which includes uh, Rachel McAdams' character, Christine Palmer, who was in the original Doctor Strange film. And Doctor Strange, at the end of that 2016 film, made the decision to protect the New York Sanctum and not be with, Palm- uh, with Christine Palmer. And that's pretty good, but I do have to say that in the beginning of the film, Doctor Strange attends a wedding between... Christine Palmer and her uh, fiance, or rather her, uh, another man. And that man is also very underdeveloped. And I should note that the man that Christine Palmer, Rachel McAdams' character, is marrying is black. And the reason I bring that up is because it's, it's not that I have anything against interracial relationships. I don't. If you know anything about my personal life, <laughs> and I don't div- divulge that on my show very much. I have no problem with interracial relationships. My problem is that Rachel McAdams' fiance in this movie is so grossly underdeveloped and only has about two lines. And I feel like he is one of those expendable characters. And it's it's one of those troubling trends with movies and TV shows that have interracial relationships where you're hoping for somebody of the same race to be with this person and the person of the different race becomes more expendable. And I think that's a very troubling trend. And there's a YouTube channel that's called the take, which has a really good 20 to 25 minute essay on some of the, this kind of trope, the expendable token person of race that is uh, kind of troubling. One such example of this is uh, the character of Ross Geller in, in Friends. Throughout the 10-year run of Friends, you want him to be with Rachel. And a lot of the times that it doesn't work out between him and Rachel, it's largely his fault. But besides that, there is one large chunk of friends in the second season where he has a relationship with a Chinese American woman named Julia. And then later in season nine or season 10, he also has a relationship with another woman who's black, who's played um, by Aisha Tyler. And these characters are expendable. um, And it's, it's just, it's supposed to be one of those things where the, Interracial relationships are supposed to be more common, but in these movies and TV shows, because of the way that the narrative is set up, 
the audience begins to almost vicariously be against these characters of race uh, of a different race. And that's really not fair. And that's just one of the many things that uh, of the problems I had with Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness and primarily the multiverse wasn't all that impressive or at least not the same way that the um, multiverse was in the last Spider-Man movie, which was Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. Uh, I just temporarily forgot that. That took the multiverse, that actually introduced the multiverse into the Marvel Cinematic Universe for the first time. But the way they actually incorporated the multiverse into the plot of Spider-Man No Way Home was really impressive. It ended up making Spider-Man No Way Home the best Spider-Man movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and one of the best Spider-Man movies ever made so far. I should also note that Doctor Strange is directed by Sam Raimi, who directed... Uh, the first three Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire. This is actually the first feature film he's directed since 2013 when he directed Oz the Great and Powerful. And even though he hasn't stopped um, being in the in the movie business and has actually directed several uh, episodes of TV shows, he's a bit rusty when it comes to uh, directing big budget films. And I think the narrative of this film shows that the special effects are very impressive. In fact, probably the most impressive scene is when the character of Dr. Strange and America Chavez are warped into various universes and they find themselves tumbling between each and every universe. And the, the visualization of all these universes is quite impressive. There's one that's rotoscope animated. There's one where the characters are all made out of paint, but right when you're impressed with those universes, it just cuts into another universe. And ultimately it ends up in a very dull universe. And on top of that, the, the plot of the film is very, very confusing, and there are a lot of plot contrivances that I couldn't really get behind. So, does this mean the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in, in terms of making quality movies? No, but I think very much like The Eternals, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, for so many reasons, is a misstep. Other than Doctor Strange, all the other characters are are so underdeveloped that you ultimately really don't care about who wins or loses other than Doctor Strange. In addition to that, the ending of the film, while there is a really clever uh, end credit sequence and the promise that Doctor Strange will return, which I hope he does because he's a very interesting character, I think this is probably one of the weaker of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. And also, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Disney vicariously through it should seriously consider putting a list together on the posters of these films telling their moviegoers what films and TV shows they should see before seeing this film. Either that or just make one that is not entirely dependent on movies you may or may have not seen previously. Other Marvel Cinematic Universes have done this better. Uh, other Marvel Cinematic Universe movies have done this better. But Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness fell short. And for that reason, it gets my rating of a strikeout. The visual effects of, these, of this film is very impressive. Uh, excuse me. 
they are very impressive. Excuse me for not being uh, grammatically correct. The acting in this film is very good. And there are some Easter eggs here and there, as well as some promises for other potential Marvel Cinematic Universe films that come after that that might get fans excited. But in terms of the story and in terms of how clear the multiverse is, not to mention the motivations of some of the female characters who should have been built up a lot more than they ultimately were, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness unfortunately misses a lot more than it hits. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And this is a film that's been out for a little while. It came out in mid-April, but I didn't get to review it for you until now. And given how few films have come out in theaters to make room for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness... I am reviewing it for you right now. Not to mention that this also deals, this is also a film that deals with a certain multiverse uh, um, in this particular uh, setting. So in Everything Everywhere All at Once, Michelle Yeoh plays an aging, excuse me, an aging Chinese immigrant who is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone, she alone can save the world by exploring other universes, connecting with the lives she could have led. And this is a film that has a primarily uh, Asian American cast with some exceptions. It is directed by a team known as the Daniels and Specifically, they are Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Obviously, Dan Kwan is of Asian descent. I'm not exactly sure about Dan Scheinert, but his previous filmography as a director have actually included a number of uh, music videos, including the DJ Snake and Lil Jon music video for Turn Down for What, which came out in 2014. God, it seems like that uh, film came out, uh, or rather that song came out months ago. But he's also directed movies like Swiss Army Man, which came out in 2016. And this is a film that I actually did see. It's an odd film in which he also directed with Daniel Scheinert. And I got to admit, it was a little too odd for me, and I didn't exactly like it. It starred Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe, and Daniel Radcliffe literally played a cadaver who was hanging on for dear life. And it was just a, a very weird film, but some people liked it. And also the Daniel team directed another movie that was called Omniboat, a fast boat Fantasia, which came out in 2020. And this was one of several movies that I missed in 2020. I missed so many movies in 2020, not because I didn't try to see films, but because movie theaters were closed and I just only had a Netflix subscription for most of 2020. But I'm putting 2020 behind it. us, me, as 
much as I think that other people are going to put it behind them. But this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, is a dramatic improvement over The Swiss Army Man. And it's good to see these independent filmmakers make a film that's uh, an improvement over what they previously did. I can't say the same thing about Sam Raimi and his attempt at the multiverse, but it might not have been entirely Sam Raimi's fault that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness didn't work as as well as it did. But anyway, in Everything Everywhere All at Once, Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn Wang, who is a first-generation Chinese-American woman who runs a struggling laundromat with her husband, Waymond, and... I didn't mispronounce that. His name is actually Waymond, and he's played by Kei Hui Quan. I hope I pronounced that name right. Kei Hui Quan is actually Vietnamese, but in this movie he plays Chinese. And even though his name might not sound particularly familiar, moviegoers who really uh, know their movies will probably recognize him as Short Round from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, as well as Data from The Goonies. And those were two of the major films in which he acted. And he actually took a 15-year hiatus from acting. Um, he, he was in um, a few films and uh, TV shows after he was in The Goonies. He was in a couple of Cyndi Lauper um, music videos He was in TV shows like Nothing is Easy and Head of the Class, and he also acted in the Brendan Fraser, Pauly Shore movie Encino Man. But he was in a movie called Red Pirate in 1997 and didn't act until 2002 when he was in a movie called Second Time Around, and then he didn't act for almost 20 years, and this is only his second film in two years, but... I immediately recognized him from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, despite the fact that it's been nearly 40 years since that movie came out. But it's great to see him back having uh, a role alongside such an accomplished actress as Michelle Yeoh. But anyway, tensions are high for a lot of reasons, and the primary reason for that is because the laundromat is being audited by the IRS. Additionally, Waymond is trying to give Evelyn divorce papers and also Evelyn's demanding father, Gong Gong, who is played by another veteran Chinese actor, um, James Hong, is living with them and just arrived from China and he is also uh, struggling with dementia. In addition to that, as is seemingly uh, common in several um, Asian American films, Evelyn Wang is struggling to accept her daughter, uh, Joy, who is played by a fine young actress by the name of Stephanie Hsu, because Stephanie Hsu is not only more assimilated into American life than her Chinese immigrant parents, but she is also a lesbian. And she has a, a girlfriend that Evelyn is struggling to accept. So there are a lot of pressures that Evelyn is facing in life added to a very tenacious IRS auditor named Deidre Bobidra, who's played in a fantastic performance in this movie by Jamie Lee Curtis. And when things seem to be not going Evelyn's way, 
She finds that her husband, Waymond, actually changes personalities and literally pulls her into another universe. So Evelyn Wang is struggling not only with IRS pressures, her rebellious teenage daughter, her senile father, as well as her husband, who wants to get a divorce from her, at least in one dimension. She is also being threatened by this multiverse as well as the temptation to be sucked into a black hole like everything bagel, which her daughter from another universe has created. So that might seem kind of confusing to discuss, but I can assure you that if you watch this film and you watch Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, everything everywhere all at once actually makes a lot more sense. Not to mention that unlike Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Everything Everywhere All at Once, who definitely had a, a fraction of the budget that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness had, actually explored these other multiverses and was a lot more creative in the uh, creation of these multiverses than the Doctor Strange movie was. And I appreciated Everything Everywhere all at once when I saw it, but I appreciated it even more after I saw the Doctor Strange movie having a bigger budget, yet a lot more of a confusing story. So I really have to give accolades to the Daniels, who not only directed this film, but also wrote it themselves. And this was not based on a TV show, a movie, or a comic book, they came up with it themselves. And they should be absolutely commended for this film um, being as original. It's certainly chaotic and uh, cataclysmic as it is, but th when the characters are going through something as chaotic and cataclysmic and they basically don't know what to make of all these multiverses as much as we do, not to mention they explore these multiverses as thoroughly as they do, that leads to a really good and original story. Not to mention that the the, mu the music for this movie is fantastic because it's composed by Sun Lux and includes collaborations with such accomplished and out there musicians as Mitski, David Byrne, and Andre 3000. I was very impressed by Everything Everywhere All at Once, and even though it's been out in theaters for almost an entire month, or at least in wide release, I think it's worth seeing, and it, show, and it actually shows that you don't necessarily have to have a huge budget to explore such subversive and subversively psychological um, theories as a multiverse. All you just have to have is a great story and characters that are fully fleshed out. Everything everywhere all at once had that Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness did not, not to mention I, I should praise this movie for having such a diverse cast, but one of the strengths of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness was its diverse cast. It just, there was some tokenism that shouldn't have been there, but in this film, even though there was one character that's played by Jenny Slate that was a bit disposable, 
and was a bit more of a stereotype. I thought everything else in this film really worked, which is why everything everywhere all at once gets my rating of a knockout. And this is a film that I will see again. I loved Michelle Yeoh in this. I loved, loved Jamie Lee Curtis in this film as well. Also, Kehui Kwan also had a really great return to film after having somewhat of a spotty filmography up to this point. But this is certainly the best film he's been in since The Goonies. It's great to see James Hong in this movie as well. And also, Stephanie Hsu did a really great job playing Michelle Yeoh's character's daughter. And she had amazing chemistry with just about everyone else in this film. So, it handles the themes of existentialism and nihilism so well. And... It shows that unlike Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, you don't have to have a big budget to do such a task with a movie. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Marmaduke. And this is not the 2010 movie that's a blend of live action and animation that starred Owen Wilson as the voice of the titular dog. But it is based on the same character that was uh, created for comic strips. And I think that Marmaduke is still available in or still uh, widely syndicated in comic strips in newspapers all over the world or yeah actually all over the world but it's been a long time since I've read a Marmaduke comic strip but I have the feeling that the Marmaduke comic strip based on the ones that I read very long ago bear very little of a resemblance to the Marmaduke we see in this animated film that is directed by actually three directors, Mark A.Z. Zippe, uh, oh, excuse me, four directors, Yunki Lee, Phil Nebelink, and Matt Philip Whelan. And it is credited uh, at, for being written, story and screenplay, by Byron Kavanaugh. And this film feels like a typical children's movie. The animation is not especially great. And the story is also something that we've seen before. Now, the writer, Brian, excuse me, Byron Kavanaugh, has written several uh, TV shows or several episodes of TV shows, including Kickin' It, which used to be on the Disney Channel, and Pat the Dog. And he previously wrote the story and screenplay for a movie called Next Level, which is a movie about teens who are in a dance troupe. And I haven't seen it, but I might seek it out, but only if I have time. So Byron Kavanaugh is no stranger to children's films, but there was a lot that I didn't like about this film. So it is a movie about a great Dane named Marmaduke, who, if you are a reader of the funny papers like I am, you definitely know who this dog is. 
And in this movie, Marmaduke is a loyal dog, but also a very mischievous dog who basically stops at nothing when it comes to having, when there's food in front of him, he just loses all control. And it prompts his family, the Winslows, to send him to a legendary dog trainer whose name is uh, Ronnie Hilton. And, oh, excuse me, Guy Hilton. And he is voiced by Brian Hull. And Guy Hilton believes that he can transform Marmaduke from an undisciplined dog into the first Great Dane to win the World Dog Championship, which is more or less the Westminster, Westminster Dog Show. But of course, Marmaduke's old ways catch up with him when there is a prize dog named Zeus, who's voiced by J.K. Simmons, who is trying to sabotage Marmaduke's chance of winning this world dog show. And Marmaduke, by the way, is voiced by Pete Davidson, who I said in my last week's um, segment, What's Coming Up Next?, I'm not enthusiastic about Pete Davidson because I don't think he's a good actor. I don't think he's very funny. I think he is criminally overrated. And you hear about him more nowadays because of him dating Kim Kardashian more than his actual comic or acting ability. And as I was listening to Pete Davidson as the voice of Marmaduke, I immediately thought that he was miscast in this role. I also thought the same about the pampered dog Zeus, who's voiced by J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, J.K. Simmons is a great actor, let alone a great voice actor. And he's great no matter what um, character he's voicing, especially if he's the yellow peanut M&M on the, uh, cart- uh, on the uh, cartoon commercials, but J.K. Simmons should have been the voice of Marmaduke because when I look at a Great Dane, I immediately think that if they had a human voice, it would have a very deep voice like J.K. Simmons, not so much a high, well, sort of that uh, Staten Island higher-pitched accent that Pete Davidson has. And there are also some other um, voice actors who do fine, but the, the problem is that A lot of the characters here are very underdeveloped. Either that or we've seen them before. Of course, there's the Guy Hilton character who's the vain dog trainer who we've seen countless times in other movies before. And the family, uh, the Winslow family, with the patriarch Phil Winslow, who's voiced by David Kachner, is also very, very bland. Of course, the youngest son of the family is going to adore the dog and kind of encourage him to do all these hijinks. You also have a teenage daughter who cares more about her popularity than she does the dog. And also, the design on some of these characters is sometimes very odd. For instance, the matriarch of the family, Barbara, who's voiced by Aaron Fitzgerald, has a comically giant... I'm trying to keep this uh, PG rated. Um, her butt is huge, almost too huge. And nobody makes any um, reference to it in this film, but I remember thinking to myself as I'm watching this film, couldn't they have had a better design for this woman? Because she has a comically giant patoot 
that <laughs> no one really makes mention of, and it just doesn't really seem to add to her character either. But there are also some other jokes that are decidedly lowbrow. Like, for example, there's one scene where Zeus tempts Marmaduke um, into eating a whole bunch of food before his performance in a dog show before the big championships. And there are these fart jokes as well as dog poop jokes that didn't really make me laugh. And I don't think they're going to make anybody over the age of four laugh either. So Marmaduke is a big miss. It's animation is not particularly impressive. Pete Davidson doesn't do very well as the voice of Marmaduke, not to mention the fact that Peter da- uh, Pete Davidson is overrated and also is obnoxious as a performer. And Pete Davidson has yet to prove me wrong because he's been on SNL for seven years. He seems to kind of half-ass it, and Marmaduke, unfortunately, feels like half-assing as a movie and in its casting choices as well. The characters are are bland. Their design isn't all that impressive. The CGI in this animated film isn't all that great. And there are also things that they add to lesser cartoon movies that are the equivalent of dangling keys. One such example of this is there is a dance-off in this movie and Kids' movies do not need dance-offs. Kids are not impressed by that. I'm not impressed by it. And added to that, Marmaduke raps at the end of the movie during the credits. And it's a really bad rap, first of all, but it immediately brought to mind the animated Titanic movie, which you might have heard about on the internet, but one of the things about that animated movie is that there is a rapping dog in a movie that takes place in 1912. It is absolutely ridiculous. And when Marmaduke is reminding me of bad animated movies I've seen, like the animated one of the animated Titanic uh, musicals, as well as Food Fight or Norm of the North, it doesn't speak very well, and it kind of minimizes its chances of being nominated for any major awards other than the Razzies. So Marmaduke is a flunk out. I think that... It could have been better if they just had more developed characters. If J.K. Simmons had been the voice of Marmaduke as opposed to Pete Davidson. And if the animation was even slightly better. And this is an independently produced animated film. And I shouldn't slam it as much as I do, but as much as I have been doing, but when you have a second-rate comic actor as the voice of a character you're supposed to care about... It just doesn't really make it all that good a a movie experience. And I doubt any child over the age of four or maybe even over the age of two will enjoy this film. And when there are so many other great animated films out there, including some that came out this year, like Turning Red or The Bad Guys, who could blame them?
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of May 9th through 13th, 2022. And there are more movies that are coming out in theaters this coming week than are coming out, well, that came out this past weekend. And the biggest movie that's coming out in theaters is actually a remake of Firestarter. And Firestarter is based on a short story written by Stephen King that was made into a movie in 1984 starring a young Drew Barrymore. And it was, um, it was made after E.T., so it's not as young as Drew Barrymore was in E.T., but still, it's one of her um, films, that notable films that she did when she was a child. And when she was falling, sort of victim to the child actor curse, but fortunately, she's doing really well now. She's not in as many films But she has a TV show that's just been renewed for its third season, which she hosts on daytime TV, and she's very well adjusted, so good for her. The original Firestar movie not only starred Drew Barrymore, but also starred Freddie Jones, Heather Locklear, Martin Sheen, George C. Scott, Art Carney, Louise Fletcher, and other people. So a, a number of good actors in that mix. This Firestarter is about the same thing as the original Firestarter. It's about a young girl who tries to understand how she mysteriously gained the power to set things on fire with her mind. So this movie has not as many uh, notable names in it, but it has some familiar names. Zac Efron is the the father, I believe, either the father or, or older brother of the young girl, Charlie McGee, who's played by... Ryan Kiera Armstrong, who I'm not familiar with entirely. The movie also stars Gloria Rubin, who used to be on ER. Kirkwood Smith, who used to be on That 70s Show. He played Topher Grace's father. And a number of other actors who I don't recognize. So the cast is not as auspicious as the original 1984 movie. And I can't say how good the 1984 movie is because I actually haven't seen it, but I hear good things. But Firestarter is, I think, a movie that's risky because it's it's risky to remake a film that has a following, even if it is bad, but even if that original film was bad. But I will see Firestarter, the new one, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters is one that's called The Innocence. And remember when I told you that There are more movies coming out this weekend than last weekend. Well, I was wrong, and I apologize for that. Next weekend, May 20th, is when more films are going to be coming out. The weekend after that, May 27th, is going to be Memorial Day weekend, where there will definitely be more films coming out in theaters. But again, no shortage of new movies coming out, just a shortage of movies that are coming out in theaters, because theaters are still trying to get back on their feet, particularly after they've been closed through most of 2020 and some of 2021. But anyway... One film that is subject to being released in theaters is one called The Innocence, and this is a foreign film directed by Eskil Vaught, 
who is a Norwegian director. And during the bright Nordic summer, a group of children reveal their dark and mysterious powers when the adults aren't looking. Now, I just described Firestarter, which is a Stephen King novel. The Innocent sounds like something Stephen King would write about children who are dangerous, like in Firestarter, and maybe even Children of the Corn, another Stephen King story that was developed into an auspicious film. But anyway, in this original, which means it was not written by Stephen King, and gripping supernatural thriller, playtime takes a dangerous turn. Now, even though Stephen King didn't write this, this seems like one of those movies that Stephen King would love. Because Stephen King loves a good horror film, and he actually sees about 80 films a year. And that's all the more impressive considering he writes so much. He comes out with probably two to three books a year, and that is not easy to do. But then again, that is his job. So, of course, there's that. The Innocence doesn't have anybody acting in it that I would know. But if you're interested, the stars include Raquel Lenora Flottam, Alva Brinsmo Ramstad, Sam Ashraf, and Mina Yasmin Bremseth Ashim. These are names that are decidedly unfamiliar to Western audiences, but if I see this movie, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed the two film, or rather previewed, spoken word-wise, the movies that are subject to being released in theaters on May 13th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into what movies are going to be premiering on streaming. And I'm going to start with Netflix, where there are several Netflix originals that are premiering for the week of May 9th through May 13th, 2022. There is a film premiere of a movie called Ghost in the Shell, SAC 2045 Sustainable War. This is a Netflix original that will be premiering on Monday, May 9th. And hopefully, and I do mean hopefully, A, it's not live action, unlike the remake starring Scarlett Johansson, and B, it's not whitewashed. Yeah, that Ghost in the Shell remake was bad for two reasons. It remade a great movie, and it had Scarlett Johansson playing a role that should have gone to either a Japanese woman or a woman of Asian descent. It didn't even matter if the if the woman was Vietnamese or Chinese or Mongolian. She, yeah, it should have gone to an Asian woman. But Ghost in the Shell is actually made in Japan, and it is probably animated. Will I see it? Maybe, but I can't guarantee it. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another movie that is coming out on Tuesday, May 10th, one of three Netflix originals. And the first one is a foreign film called The Getaway King. And this is a film I don't know very much about right off the top of my head, but I'm looking it up for you right now. And it is directed by Matsus Rakowicz, who is a Polish director. 
And this movie, The Getaway King, is about an uh, it's an action crime comedy that is set in the last days of communism in Poland. So I'm not sure exactly what period that is because I know communism ended well, after World War II sometime, but I oh it it takes place in the late 80s. So anyway, last days of communism in Pol- Poland, and it's about a folk hero thief who escaped 29 times from cops. That's quite impressive. The folk hero thief is named Namro and was living on his own terms against the system, but love and the collapsing Berlin Wall changed everything. This sounds like a fascinating film. Will I see it? Maybe, maybe not. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another Netflix original that was premiering on Tuesday, May 8th, is a movie that's called Operation Mincebeat, and this is an American film, and it has a great uh, title, and even though um, people think mincemeat as something bad when it comes to humans, which it is literally and figuratively, I've tried mincemeat before, and it is quite delicious, but this is a movie that actually is not American, it's British, and it's a movie that stars Colin Firth, Matthew McFadden, and Kelly MacDonald. This is a film that actually was supposed to premiere in theaters on April 15th, but to my knowledge, it didn't. But it takes place during World War II, and it is about two intelligence officers who use a corpse and false papers to outwit German troops. In addition to the aforementioned actors that I mentioned, there are a few other British actors... I I shouldn't have built that up so much. There aren't many other actors in this film that I know. I know those three principal actors. And this is a film that I probably will see. And when I see it, I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The third film that's going to be premiering on Netflix is a film that's called Our Father. And this, to my knowledge, is an American film. It's about... A woman who, after her at-home DNA test reveals multiple half-siblings, she discovers a shocking scheme involving donor sperm and a popular fertility doctor. This is like a movie that I've seen before. It stars, uh, actually, Donald Klein is in the movie in archive footage, which means he probably died. And the movie also stars uh, Simone Elise Girard, Leslie Koch, Foomberg and Keith Boyle, amongst others. I don't recognize any of the actors here, but the the movie sounds really creepy and very unsettling, which means I will do my best to see it. And when I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And there's another film that's going to be premiering on Netflix on Friday, um, April, May 13th. And this is a film that I probably will see. This is a film that is called Senior Year. It is an American film, and it stars Rebel Wilson. Not only does it star Rebel Wilson, but Rebel Wilson is much, much thinner in this film than we've seen her in Bridesmaids, the Pitch Perfect films, and just about every other film in which she's acted. So Rebel Wilson is taking a risk being in a movie again after losing as much weight as she has, and There is a very unfair backlash that goes towards celebrities who, uh, particularly female celebrities who are known for their girth. That's a, 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 
let, let me put it to you this way without sounding like a male chauvinist pig. There are overweight female celebrities who lost weight and they suffered backlash as a result. Not from the Hollywood community necessarily, but from women who are proud of the size that they are and think that these women conform to Hollywood beauty standards. And I don't think that's particularly fair. Megan Trainer is one of these uh, women who suffered one of those backlashes. And Lizzo, if she decides to lose weight, um, is probably also going to suffer that backlash. And I think when women take the effort to make the effort to take care of themselves and don't resort to fat reduction surgery, I think that's commendable. When they do resort to surgery, I do think that's that's taking a little bit of a shortcut, and, and men too, but good for Rebel Wilson for getting herself in shape. I'm not necessarily saying that her movies are going to be better because she looks better, but I'm going to give this movie a chance. But this movie, Senior Year, is very interesting. It is about a cheerleading stunt that that went wrong that landed a young girl at 17 into a 20 year coma. She must've hit her head really badly, but when she wakes up after her coma, she's now 37 and is ready to live out her high school dream of becoming prom King, a prom queen. How did I make that mistake? So rebel Wilson is of course the woman who, uh, woke up after a 20 year, uh, coma and well, yeah, when you're 37, regardless of whether or not it's your fault that you woke up after a 20 year coma, I would put that dream of becoming prom queen behind you. Give it to somebody who actually is in high school and wants it more than you do. But that's just the movie here. So anyway, maybe that's the message of the film. I don't exactly know, but I'm going to give this movie a chance. I like rebel Wilson. I think she's funny. And I don't necessarily know if this movie is going to be great, but of course I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But I should also mention that the movie also co-stars Justin Hartley, Alicia Silverstone, Sam Richardson, and Chris Parnell, amongst others. So we got some good actors in this, this movie as well. Does that guarantee that it's going to be a good movie? Probably. I mean, definitely not. But I'll let you know what I think when I see it on next week's show. And this is a movie I definitely... We'll see. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.